And welcome to People My Dog Would Like, where I get to speak with interesting people about their game-changing ideas, fresh initiatives and out-of-the-box movements with an eye on the future and a compassionate future at that. Today, my guest is John Leotier, author, speaker and entrepreneur and a successful marketer with more than 20 years of experience in promoting, launching, designing and jump-starting new businesses and products through innovative marketing concepts. As one of the co-founders of Right Mesh and as Chief Marketing Officer for its parent company, Left, a tech innovations and media company, John contributes to the global strategy, vision and technology roadmap to help propel a new mesh technology onto the global stage. John's forte is to leverage tech and marketing automation to ensure that early stage companies compete on equal footing to large established companies. So that sounded like a disruptor to me and I love the sound of it. Tech is a true equaliser. John, welcome to the show and thanks for taking the time out of your busy global schedule to have a chat. My pleasure. It's great to be here today. So listen, I know you're in Bangladesh. What's the weather like at the moment? Uh, it's actually quite pleasant. It's about uh, 28 Celsius, uh, f- somewhat humid, but not too bad. There's a nice breeze. It's uh, it's actually much more pleasant than I've been here in the past. It, December's a wonderful time in Bangladesh. It's much nicer than yeah. the than the May summer heat when it comes in. It's the 38 to 40 degrees Celsius or hotter, um, and the humidity just sticks to you. So it's actually quite pleasant. Mm-hmm. Lovely and much nicer than, um, oh, much warmer, should I say, than Vancouver right now. Oh, much warmer, much much nicer. My my family is somewhat jealous of me, actually, for, for uh, which is not something that they don't say very often when I travel as much as I do. Yeah, yeah. So listen, tell me a little bit about the work you're doing there. What brings you to Bangladesh in the first place? So, sure. So we, my, myself and my partner, Chris, we started a company back in 2010, and while we both were technologists, uh, in that sense, we had worked in technology for for pretty much our entire careers, uh, we weren't coders. And uh, at the time, we were sort of cheap startup entrepreneurs and we were looking for ways to to save money. And we happened to post a project on a website and found this one developer who happened to be out of Bangladesh and we gave him a contract. Um, and then we gave him a second contract and a third contract and a fourth contract. Said, hey, listen, you've, you've got a whole bunch of contracts for us. Why don't you work for us full time? And sort of at that moment on, a partnership was born. Um, we went from one employee to two, two to four, four to seven, seven to 15. And I think we have about 70, 75 people here in Bangladesh right now. So um, I get out here about two or three times a year and and hang out with the team and see the cool things that they're working on. And um, yeah, and sort of uh, this might, somebody told me when I arrived that this is my eighth trip to Bangladesh. So uh, it's a second home. Yeah, right. So what was it like building a team over there? I mean, I did do some research in relation to, um, you know, where you're distributing the work that you're doing. Tell us a little bit about that. I understand you didn't have any internet. There was no data. You talk about the peer-to-peer or device-to-device. I, I just found the whole uh, the whole concept of working there under such challenging ecosystems really interesting. Well, I, I, I guess to, we didn't realize how challenging it was from a technical standpoint until we actually got out here the first time because we didn't come out until about three or four years into the, the relationship uh, with the team out here. And and, it, and I need to clarify, it's not an outsourced group. It is it is our team. It is our uh, our group, our, our family, if you will. 
Um, but yeah. in the early days of the company, we didn't really know what we were going to do or what we were going to what we we're going to be when we grew up. And but we were working on a lot of fairly large, fairly prominent internet brands at the time. And uh, unbeknownst to us, we were building some of these world-leading properties on dial-up speed over here in Bangladesh. Because as far as I was concerned, I was just sort of having Skype calls with uh, Rakib, our lead over here, and uh, his morning, my night, my night, his morning. And we just started building things. And then the product would come out. I'd give them the product specs during the day. And then the next day, I'd, I'd be reviewing things back and forth. We had this wonderful 24-hour rhythm going. But what actually life on the ground was like was much different than what I sort of expected. It's uh, literally things that we take for granted, like downloading a file from an email. Uh, you send somebody an attachment with a 8 MB uh, attachment, and you don't think anything of it. But uh, in the early days, if I send an 8 megabyte file, it takes an hour to download. So uh, when you start thinking about building brands and building companies on with those technology hurdles, you, it's it's extremely challenging. But from our perspective, we weren't realizing it until we actually came over here for the first time. We started to to experience life in Bangladesh and realize, wow, this is this is different. This this is this is much different. So in a way, the team here needs to be fully commended for their uh, their willingness or their ability to adapt. Yeah. So I was interested actually in your co-founder, I think it was Chris Jennison, is that right, of Left? That's correct. He yep. said in order to understand the story of Right Mesh, um, you need to understand the story of Left. And and I, I guess from my perspective, I, I came across you because I was interested in what Right Mesh were doing. And that was when I saw that and I thought, well, actually, that's probably a good place to start. So why not tell us a story about, about Left? Sure. So in order to understand the story of Left, you have to understand the story of Chris and myself. Back in 97, 98, we were both sort of young entrepreneurs, young tech entrepreneurs experiencing the, the glory of the dot-com boom. And uh, we, were, we, we, we were not working on the same company together, but we would meet at networking events and say, hi, how are you? What are you working on? And I would say, well, I'm working on a consumer internet stealth company. How about you? Say, oh, hey, me too. And you bond over that shared experience. Mm -hmm. And as, as any friendship sort of evolves, if you start to bond and, and get attached to the people that you um, have similar values towards and you, uh, we get together sort of once a, once a month, have a pint, have a, uh, go out for coffee, go play some squash, do whatever. And sort of became that sounding board for ideas. Mm. And we always say, you know what, one day we should run a company together. We had uh, interesting vision, interesting values that were aligned, and, and we thought we'd work really well together. And it wasn't really until uh, 2010 that we really truly had a chance to sort of do that. Um, uh, we, I, quick, quick little story here. Uh, mm. We don't actually, we weren't planning on doing this startup. This is a complete accidental company. Uh, we, we were, uh, I got together with Chris then on one Friday morning back in 2010. And I said, hey, Chris, I need to buy you uh, buy your breakfast. I have to run something past you. I'm having a, a bit of a moral dilemma here. And my moral dilemma was that the company I was with at the time was a, a sort of a, a VP of a, a marketing e-commerce company. And uh, I said, I, I have a big challenge that the board of directors are going to take the company in a completely different direction that I'm not necessarily on board with. But part of that, I have to basically go off uh, and lay off a large part of my team uh, to make some pretty drastic, drastic cuts. So we started talking through my options, and uh, and Chris said, "Well, are you going to be going to this conference that was happening on the Monday? It was sort of a an industry conference that both him and I had been in the past." And I said, "No, I I can't go to this conference. It's it's a three thousand dollar ticket to to go on Monday." He said, "No, no, we we, we should go." And he looked at the website. And he said, "Hey, wait a second. There's a, they actually have a startup contest as part of this. And if you pitch a business idea, you can get in for five hundred dollars." So um, Chris says, "You know what? We we should, we should pitch something." 
And I said, oh, well, it's, it's Friday and this thing is on the Monday. You think there's actually a chance for us to pitch something? No, there's no, there's no chance. It'll be full. So Chris sort of being the, oh, well, let's just, just take a shot and uh, picks up the phone and calls the organizer and says, hey, we're looking to, to pitch. Are, are you taking new companies? And they say, yeah, yeah, we can get you in. How much money are you looking to raise? And, and Chris said, no, no, we don't really want any money to uh, at this point. What we're looking for is uh, one really good domain name. This is a, a domaining, uh, high-end domain name conference. We just want one good domain name to work on. No, what you have to do is actually have to have money if you're going to pitch. So Chris says, oh, my mistake. I meant to say we're asking for $100,000 for 20% of the company. Great, you're in. So he hangs up the phone. He says, we're, we're in. We're pitching on Monday. What are we going to pitch? And I said, well, huh. The company is not going to go off in this different direction that I was currently with. So how about we solve two problems here? One is I go quit my job. I'll license the IP I was going to work on, and we'll pitch that idea instead. So I went over to my existing company, uh, quit my job, got a, a severance package, which included IP transfer, this one concept. Um, we both went away on the on the weekend. It was actually my birthday weekend. Uh, and uh, I, uh, he worked on five slides. I worked on five slides. We got together on the Sunday night and we put our slides together and said, hey, well, are we allowed to use a PowerPoint? And I, oh, I, I, I don't know. So we basically sort of went up there and we, we winged it. And we had three of the four sharks or the dragons or whatever you say at this pitch contest. And they said, hey, we'll invest in your company. Um, we ended up not taking any of those. We took a, another guy we met later that day who had known from past uh, past entrepreneurial endeavors. And he said, hey, what, you guys are here too. What are you doing? Well, we, we pitched something today. I said, oh, wow, cool. I'll invest in you guys. And I said, well, you, you saw our presentation? No, no, no. But I, I trust you guys. You'll, you'll figure it out. And uh, so that was sort of the, the start. We uh, called up a, a third friend that day and I said, hey, Bill, we have a, a huge favor to ask. We need a, a company called Left of the Dot Media Inc. Um, and in, in Canada, you have to have a little modifier attached to it. He said, great. Well, what's, what's your second choice in case you don't get that? And no, no, Bill, you don't understand. We, there is no second choice. We, we, we have a check that's made out to Left of the Dot Media Inc. So we need the company to be called exactly that. Um, and that was been so over seven and a half years ago now that we went from a wow. – getting fully employed to a ta-da we have a company so wow gutsy gutsy well so sorry sure sorry i was gonna say so what was it called left of the dot it was called left of the dot because that was going to be we needed a domain name for lack of a better term um that was a um black hat forum style uh pseudonym i had i had to happen to have the left of the dot dot com domain name and really the business model we were pitching was that uh, we believe that all good domain names were gone and that if we took a, a good domain name, a generic concept like a villa.com or california.com or any of these other one-word brandable domain assets, we could actually lease out and manufacture real yeah. estate, literally, uh, for free because any sort of subdomain concept off of a california.com, a la.california.com, a realtor.california.com, we thought that had immense search value. And it did. It did for a while. It was... Um, yeah, yeah. with, if I had that generic name, I really could like rank any kind of concept, uh, as a subdomain. So it was left of the dot com is really how we, we sort of positioned it. And so, so how did, right, I mean, what, so what does left do? I, I, I was kind of trying to get my head around it. Can you, can you kind of expand on, I, I know, you, I think you've said it's like you make product and you're kind of like a lifestyle company, but. I couldn't quite get my head around it. Well, we definitely started out that way. And, and I guess a large part has to be attributed to that accidental beginning. In that accidental beginning, we mm. we had the good fortune of not being uh, almost under requirement of quickly figuring things out of what are you going to build. 
so we, the very first thing we did as a company said, okay, let's let's work on our ten core values. Let's let, what are what are we truly uh, trying to do? And uh, the whole thing really can be summarized by the statement of if you build a company uh, that uses uh, good values and has a good culture, uh, that will attract good people. And if you attract good people, those yeah. good people will build good things. We didn't know what we would build in say three, five, seven, ten years from now, but we knew if if you had good people. Yeah they'd figure it out. And that's kind of in the same way that our initial investor invested in us. He thought, you guys are good people. We'll invest in you and you'll figure it out. Wow. And that's sort of what we've been doing. So the, the first few years, we kind of iterate in different consumer companies and you you almost fail a couple times in the verge of bankruptcy. Then you have a new order come in and then you, but you sort of, uh, as Chris likes to say, you cockroach your way through it uh, until you manage to come out the other side and you realize, hey, you know what? We've actually built something kind of cool. But in in the process of doing that, and we had a, a, a aha moment. We were um, about three years ago, uh, back in sort of 2014, we were working through a, a project primarily in the travel vertical. We had a, a few number, a number of travel travel websites, each sort of making money, not really anything passionate to our towards our hearts or anything like that, but they, they were doing pretty well and they were on a bit of a growth curve. We had a bit of product market fit. Yeah, right. uh, but our, our team in Bangladesh uh, had... Uh, wanted to say thank you for all the stuff that we had done for them because we had given them a nice bonus for the year before and uh, we treated them as part of the family. And they had built this underlying technology that addressed their own pain and their own needs, which we now consider, consider to be right mesh. But this this own technology was nothing to do with what we had as our core business. It was something completely out of left field. And as much as we try to stay singularly focused, we also have sort of a, as part of our core philosophy that <clears throat> keep your head up and be aware of beware of opportunities as they emerge because you never know what you're going to see. And I was sitting there on the Skype call with, mm-hmm. with Rakib here, and uh, he was in um, Bangladesh, of course. I was back in Canada. And he sort of sent me through this little product document that described this technology that really addressed the pain that uh, the team here had, which is the internet is really, really slow. The networks are overloaded. The infrastructure is really poor. And every time I was having a Skype call, unbeknownst to me, yeah. uh, they'd be having to tell all the engineers, everybody get off the internet. Uh, so the engineers would, would sit there and say, well, uh, you're there and I'm here in the same room. Why do we need the internet just to send information back and forth? So they had created this little product spec that outlined their opportunity, what they're trying to solve. And then they then they built something. And then they said, John, hey, we built this. What do you think? And I said, do you guys realize what you've just created? I said, yeah, it's, it's kind of cool, isn't it? And it, wow. it, was, it, was, it, was, it was completely bootstrapped. And it, and it was all this sort of... Um, just sort of figure it out. So there, uh, there we were, sort of about a two months after this this momentous day of of seeing this for the first time. And and Chris and I had just left a meeting with a, a large travel company in Boston. We we're lo- walking along the river with one of those huge momentous decisions of here we were, two guys who have a a small little startup with about say at that point we we're probably about uh, fifteen to twenty people here in Bangladesh and maybe seven or eight people back in back in Canada, and. Uh, we had product market fit. We had growth. We're starting to make some yeah. um, some traction with our existing business model. But on the other side of the the ledger, you had this idea that if you managed to pull it off, could change the world. And the idea being is that could we find a way to connect the next yeah. billion people without using internet or data? And it was sort of one of these these ridiculous concepts of well, no, if somebody would have done this before, and well, why hasn't anybody done this before? And we kept on looking at it and realized, you know what? All the factors, all the all the things that are happening in the market right now are just saying, you know what, the, the time is right for mesh technology in its in its very infancy 
to finally exist for the first time. You had this huge, huge growth in smartphones and and you had this massive density uh, going into cer certain geographic regions. And that density was basically going to be able to form the bridge for that network. So we, we sat there in Boston and we said, you know what, I think we should do it. And mm -hmm. we looked at things and we said, well, what's your chance of success? And we, uh, we both sort of said, maybe what, 10%, 10% chance of success. And uh, as anybody who's done a, a startup knows, if you have a 10% chance of success, you're probably twice as likely as the next person to succeed. And then over the years, it got 10%, 15%, 20%. And, uh, and we were saying, I think we're at 50% now. And, and this is now we actually have more, more momentum, but 50% chance of success, that's huge. Wow. So, uh, and that's sort of where, where the start was. We were not planning on, on starting the company in the first place. We were not planning on going down the mesh technology stuff in the first place, but by being open to opportunities and sort of seeing what's around you, um, things happen. And just, I guess, exploring a pain point. So those engineers back in Bangladesh were probably quite frustrated, thinking, God, the bandwidth is so bad. We get you need to have the Skype call, but what can we do as a workaround? And I guess what you're saying is it was so timely. You know, the tech started to evolve. Everyone had a smartphone, and you're in this kind of dense yep. urban hub. Yeah, and... And, and problems in 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 Canada and and uh, where you are in the major urban cities of of Australia or really all around the world, most people in those already developed economies they don't think anything of it. They don't they think well internet's everywhere. Of course you have internet. And uh, one of the things we started to say is you know we we have to build this for uh, for Bangalore, not the Jersey Shore. Uh, and really the idea of of trying to find a way to to bring connectivity and bring that inclusivity uh, into these markets where. It didn't previously exist. Uh, and that was sort of the, the, the start. Now we've been on this journey for about three years now. So tell me a little bit about RightMesh then. So what is actually, I, I noticed that you um, registered for a patent and I, I was trying to work. So what is the mesh? T can you explain it a little bit to the listeners? Sure. So I, I'll go one, one level high. In a, in a way, a mesh itself can be described as the internet itself. The internet is one giant mesh. Mm. Uh, you have all these little nodes that appear and you, you're contributing and you're sharing and you're basically passing information back and forth in this, in this high level. We don't really quite think about it in that in that way, we actually go down to um, a, a local level, and, and we enable people to communicate um, device to device to device. So your smartphone to my smartphone to somebody else's smartphone in a, a close proximity region. So if you take a an office, a school, a, a campus of some sort, um, or even a, a relatively dense environment where you have a whole bunch of people living relatively nearby, you can have those people communicate um, by just going phone to phone to phone rather than phone to internet to phone. And, and realistically, if you're looking at some of these chat services like a WeChat or, or things like that, what happens with WeChat, if you and I are sitting right next to each other in the same office, it goes from my phone up to the Wi-Fi router, up to the internet, over to the WeChat servers in China, over to the Chinese government who has admitted that they're listening in at all the WeChat conversations, all the way back down to your phone and you're right next door to me. So in, in that... In that instance, uh, that communication is, uh, I apologize for the noise next door. They're having a, uh, a debate over something. <laughs> so it, it's, uh, in, in that instance, it, it's um, the communication that goes from, from one side to the other um, doesn't need to be. And, and what we're trying to figure out is a way for that communication to be, um, yeah, to, 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 be, to be fast and free is the best way to think about it. So you connect without having to be on yep. the internet. And so how do you... <laughs> Magic. <laughs> no, it, it, it's... Uh, if you think... Like they all sound like the cookie 
piggybacking on each other. The devices are piggybacking on each other. And all I could think about was – So, yeah, what, every every phone um, broadcasts and receives signal. Your phone broadcasts and receives Bluetooth. It broadcasts and receives Wi-Fi. Um, many of the, the modern um, Android phones also use Wi-Fi Direct, uh, so it's different than Wi-Fi. But uh, your phone broadcasts and receives. If your phone broadcasts and my phone receive, you and I can talk to each other. And really what um, our secret sauce has been is that we can either A, switch one person from I'm talking to you with Wi-Fi and talking to somebody else with Wi-Fi very, very fast, or we can actually talk to you with Wi-Fi and the person be behind me, if you will, uh, with Wi-Fi direct concurrently. And as soon as we now are able to sort of split that spectrum and talk to different people part across different parts of the spectrum, we can now pass messages very quickly across the edge of the network. And I mean, it doesn't, doesn't work at... Um, super long distance if I was going to go from here in Bangladesh to talk to my family that doesn't make sense the internet's wonderful for that and I don't we don't want to disrupt uh, that side but yeah. for that local communication we can take a whole bunch of that information um, off of the internet itself and really facilitate a new way of connectivity because there's so much communication that occurs that doesn't need to go up to the internet and all that does when it does go to the internet is it just congests things it just makes it it makes it slower uh, a, a, a good example is if you're if you're sitting in a lecture hall it sounds like you and efficiencies and, as well, even just as an aside. Yeah, we, we, we think we are creating huge efficiencies. And we were saying the other day that we think we make Wi-Fi better. Um, if if all of us are sort of talking to the same Wi-Fi route at the same time, it's it, it's you have 100 concurrent connections to a single single source. And it doesn't need to be that. Uh, if you're in that lecture hall and you're the first person to pull down the professor's notes, you have one one set of notes, and then the that set of notes can get past the next person, then the next person, the next person, the next person, and all that type of communication can occur without really having to, um, yeah, without having to have a hundred concurrent connections all pulling the exact same thing down. So where does blockchain? Listen, I I, I came across your uh, the business because I was really fascinated in in exploring the blockchain world. Isn't blockchain and fascinating though? From a point of view of solving huge wicked problems i think it is incredible and that's where you know I, I'm, I'm really fascinated at the moment and i'm spending a lot of time in that space and and so i love that you're obviously thinking you want something to have an impact on millions and millions of people a billion people plus you can which i think is a fabulous mission so what what part of the business or what is blockchain enabling? I mean, obviously, it can be it's decentralized. Obviously, it can be very private. I, I wasn't sure of where the blockchain retrofitted into. Uh, a very, yeah, very, very good question. And I, and I think for your uh, for your listeners, I'll also start one one level back. Uh, when we started the technology, we went out to the users and we we had some early early prototypes of, of the technology in, in different forms. And um, we had what we, what we classified as a single hop mesh technology. So it went from me to you to one person else. Uh, so basically three people in total, and, and that was it. Um, but as we started to go out to the users, we uh, we said, we, we built this thing. We we're doing a, a whole bunch of testing down in Cuba where the internet connectivity is really, really poor, and, and here in Bangladesh as well, of course. Uh, and we started asking the users, we built this thing, but we're not quite getting product market fit. Why aren't you using it like you, we, we think you would be? Uh, you have this great tool to share your internet with somebody else. Why weren't you do that? And I said, well, I know it's kind of for the good of the community, but but what's in it for me? And I said, well, what do you mean what's in it for you? I said, well, well what am I going to get out of sharing my internet? What am I going to get out of being a routing node in a mesh network? Mm. And we say, no, 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 you can, you, can, you can do all these wonderful things. You can 
connect the entire hospital and says, yeah, but it's I only have a certain amount of data or this is my battery that you're going to be using or all these other um, other sort of reasons and re rebuttals against it. So we ask the very simple but obvious questions. Well, what if we paid you to share your data? Oh, well, yeah, of course, I'd share it then. Or what if we paid you to share your, your battery and your processing power? Well, of course. So, okay, so people are motivated by self-interest. They need to find a way to be incentivized for what we classify as the right behavior. Yeah. And and that was sort of the start for us. We needed to introduce a a system that, it, that brought that in. Uh, but we had to sort of go one level back. Um, one of the big challenges we had in a uh, mesh it, itself is how do you uniquely identify a user when you don't have access to the internet? And that's a, that's a very fundamental question is, is everything we've been doing um, as a society relies on these central authorities, the Facebooks, the Googles, these these giant middlemen sitting in the middle that, that control our identity, control our sense of we are the arbiters of who you are, say who you are who you say you are. It could be a bank, it could be a government, it could be somebody else. Mm. Yet we wanted to sort of create a system that didn't require anybody to connect to a central authority that, but you still need to be able to know that I could trust that you were you. And it was a very fundamental, hard question, hard problem to solve. And it was about a few years ago now that our developers came to me and said, John, we've, we've solved the problem. We solved this this core engineering challenge. And I said, well, well, which problem? Because we we're still early stage. We had lots of problems. I said, well, which problem? I said, no, 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 the one about identity. So, well, well, how did you do that? So, well, there's a new thing that just launched. It's called Ethereum. And we think Ethereum uh, could be used. And so, well, what, what's Ethereum? No, Ethereum is kind of like, like Bitcoin. You heard about Bitcoin. Yeah, yeah, I've heard about Bitcoin. Didn't invest when I had a chance, but I've, I've heard about Bitcoin. Well, Ethereum is kind of like that. And we can use the Ethereum library to generate this new cryptographic key on every single device. And that cryptographic key, which is the Ethereum wallet ID, uh, can be used in lieu of an IP address. So in the internet connected world, everything has an IP address. Everything is an internet protocol connector. But in a mesh world where not everything connects to the internet, how do you uniquely identify not just your smartphone, but your smart appliance or your IoT device? And what they had solved is that, well, we use Ethereum mm. as this unique identifier. So we, we had that at our core and we had then went around to look for ways to incentivize um, people to sort of communicate and get incentivized for communicating across the mesh. It was a sort of natural evolution for us to say, okay, well, if we start introducing this token into the mix, uh, we can now incentivize this right behavior. So for us, uh, blockchain was a, a natural thing, and, and it, it's not a, um, it's, in a way, it's not a standard approach for why people would want to use blockchain. But you need to find a ways to uniquely trust people, and then when you start incentivizing or compensating somebody for use of their data, uh, for use of their device resources, for sharing their information. You need a central ledger to, or distributed ledger to track and, and share that information around the world. So that's sort of a, a we, we stumbled into it once again by accident. I like to keep on thinking that all this stuff is fully intentional, but really we have one giant accidental company that seems to be trying to change the world right now. Yeah, it feels like the stars keep aligning for you. I mean, to be having someone approach you with the blockchain technology and Ethereum, the conversation around Ethereum Very coincidental. was fabulous. And so... So is it that people have got their own encrypted private key? So every every device, which is whether it's a handheld mobile phone, whether it's a car, whether it's a you know a fridge, whatever, everything has got its own individual encrypted key. Is that is that how uh, it works? And is that private? Is it a private? It, it is definitely key a private key. Private? So uh, the moment our because really what we create, we have not created an application. We don't have a a hardware device. We don't have this. We have this underlying protocol. 
and really this protocol is software code mm. that any application can take our software protocol and integrate it into their existing application. So if you have a messaging application or if you have an, um, a really cool, hot new game that you want to play uh, words with friends, we're, we're, our team here is building a card game right now that should to be, let people play hearts across the mesh. Um, but if you're building, so yeah, it, it, it's the, uh, I remember playing hearts all the time, going camping and such. Um, oh my God, I'm going camping this weekend. And I've said to everyone, we are playing hearts all weekend. <laughs> so it, it's, but in that instance, if it, as soon as that card game basically initiates our library, that, that phone becomes a node in the mesh. But um, so a cryptographic key is generated. And the very first thing you need to do is almost have a handshake, if you will, with others nearby on the mesh itself. If there's um, people are one hop away, so we're within, say, 50 to 100 meters apart, we can have a single hop between us. And that hop, then, is we exchange keys. Uh, there's nobody in the middle of us. And we, as soon as we exchange our public-private keys, we are locked down and communicate across the mesh worldwide. Because we can go from device, device to device, up to internet, all across the internet, back down to device, 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 device. And it can still communicate with you with that same uh, same key structure. If we have that uh, same key structure, it's, that's um, we've taken the uh, there's a company called Whisper Systems, and it's the they use the Signal protocol, which is the uh, same technology that WhatsApp uses for um, for authenticating communication. Uh, we've taken that and put that in an entirely offline environment. So we have this hyper secure offline communication platform that nobody sits in the middle of. And if it's just me and you, and we're 1,500 meters, there's no device in the middle. If, if we're going across a, a handful of devices, all that communication, and really it's not communication, it's data that passes through from one side to the other, that's that's all encrypted, all highly secure, and there is no middleman that can can stop it. And that's that's been kind of important for us because you look at various forms of uh, the middlemen, and I sort of consider middlemen to be both, both companies and ISPs and uh, government authorities as well. Uh, they, they have that... Mm -hmm undue influence over our lives that um, frankly is, is hindering a lot of communication and democracy. And that's uh, a lot of the freedoms that we take for granted are, are being controlled by those who are listening in it, li listening in the physical digital sense, not the um, actual listening to your words, but I guess technically they could, but in a mesh environment, they can't. Yeah. Extracting all of the metadata as well, but you know, it was also this stifling innovation. I took innovation. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So what's yep. been the, the kind of um, feedback from people that have been using the system? How long have you had it up and running? So we started the mesh side, as I said, three years ago. What, what's that? Sorry? Sorry, are you in beta at the moment? What kind of, what's the status of it at the moment? So at, at this point, we released in a, in a limited beta. So we are working with some developers around the world to build mesh applications. And that includes our team here. Like with the, most of the core technology architecture now has, has transitioned to our team in Canada and the team here in Bangladesh. They're really focused on, on applications because they're the ones who have a great sense of what market here wants in that technology. So um, mm. the, the team here really are our internal beta customers, but we also have some developers around the world uh, building applications on the platform. And uh, so we're, and we hope to be able to let in a few more and a few more and a few more until we actually have many of the wrinkles out of the, out of the system. Um, but the feedback we've been getting has, has been phenomenal on one side and scared on the other, and the, and the other being in a way the status quo, because the, the status quo, if you're a telecom company, if you're a, an ISP, if you're a uh, 
somebody whose entire business is based on being that middleman, mm. you kind of don't like us very much right now. Yeah. And we didn't really quite realize how much animosity there was to us until we started talking to people who were part of the decentralized community, which is really the whole crypto blockchain space. And we said, this is what we created. What do you think? Mm. I said, what? You guys do that? And we keep, where it's, it's been kind of overwhelming to, to see the response we've been getting from from people who we've been looking up to as being super bright and super um, as these leaders. And now we're out there in the market saying we've built this. And then all of a sudden these doors are opening. Say, you got to come meet this person over here and tell them again what you just told me. And we tell our story and say, wow, okay, okay, how can we help? So, uh, so the feedback we're getting right now is it has been great. And, and if you think about it in, in practical terms, you have an entire world of the crypto community that's seen massive, massive, rapid increases in the their crypto value um, portfolios of, uh, of of things. Mm. Yet they're only addressing about four million people on the planet or five million people on the planet. Mm. What's going to happen when you introduce uh, cryptocurrency for the very first time to the next 4 billion users who aren't presently connected? Yeah. It's just, it's just transformative to the entire industry. If you now instantly you turn your phone on, you have a crypto wallet Yeah. Uh, just because you started to communicate. Yeah. Um, the, the possibilities are endless. And what's amazing is that it sounds like in various urban centres where the connectivity wouldn't necessarily be good, Right mesh are going to be there. Well, your um, utility is going to be there for them to connect anyway. So that, as well as cryptocurrencies, will mean that they are completely on board in an economy where, you know, practically before they they are unheard. I mean, they hardly even exist. They didn't. They weren't even. Yeah. You know, they weren't even citizens, were they? No. And if you look at the whole concept of digital inclusion or financial inclusion, there's there's two billion people who can't get bank accounts today, and maybe that's because they. Uh, they can't Don't own property, or they can't. Uh, I, I was talking with a group out of um, out of Singapore. My on our, my way over here, we had a few days in Singapore, and and they have this um, fractional cow ownership token model that they're doing, which, which sounds kind of silly. You have this cow coin. I don't, I don't know what the name of the coin is called, but it's the whole idea that um, a a farmer who has a cow can almost have a fractional ownership of this cow, and the future profits from this cow can be basically divvied out into the community. You basically can, can borrow and lend off of the value of this cow in, in microtransactions. That's kind of cool. That's what, right. what blockchain can do. Which kind of makes sense. I mean, it's innovative, isn't yeah. it? Well, but if that cow has an RFID chip or it has a, a small little chip attached, we can actually connect that cow into our mesh. So we can actually have cow to cow to cow to phone communication if we really wanted to. But that's now getting a little bit ahead of ourselves. <laughs> So it was around about now that I um, thought I'd add in a little conversation that John and I had after we'd had our initial conversation that I thought I'd like to include in this part of the episode. It was about UBI. We talked about the impact of having a system like UBI would have on this unbanked to billion people. And I genuinely thought that the interest in what he had to say about it, it was really cool. So universal basic income is a great is a great concept. And it makes sense for all the economic reasons. It, it's it's it is the right thing to do. And study after study shows that a universal basic income just makes sense. Mm. Um, but when you have the redistribution or wealth distribution concept of taking from the haves and giving to the have-nots, those that are the haves that control the system think they're net losers in the whole whole system, which, which is um, a, they're not, but that's the, that's the mindset. Mm. And it's really hard to change a person's mind. So if you can find a way to create that universal basic income, that, that wealth creation concept without taking away from the haves, 
then everybody wins. And I, and I think what we're, we're about to see is the greatest wealth creation the world has ever seen by bringing inclusivity to this new next generation. If, if uh, in our system we can uh, reward a person for having their smartphone function as a node in the mesh, then they just earn value, but nobody loses value. So it's, it's not about distribution of wealth. It's about creation of wealth. And the, the, the creation of wealth by uh, becoming an app store of one person and you basically distribute apps to people that are nearby you. And now they have apps that they didn't have before because they didn't have the data to it. But now that they have apps, the person who is selling the app wants to compensate you, Mrs. App Seller in Cambodia, uh, with 50 cents or, uh, or a dollar per app because that's the value of that, that free app. And it's just, just a free app, but the people will pay for those apps. That has a huge economic impact, and, and it's the there's recent studies looking at uh, the value of one dollar a day, and that the one dollar a day uh, in an emerging market economy is the equivalent of, of 66 American. And if I was to give you 66 Australian or 66 Canadian to to person, that would have a big big difference in my life. It, it's just free money, and it, but that's it's free money because it's created out of nothing. So as soon as you have that whole inclusive society and that digital inclusion and ability for that person to once they earn value and to um, create value, to store that value and then transact in that system, it changes things. And, and it's um, uh, uh, Andreas Antonopoulos. I'm not sure if you've uh, seen any of his his pot, absolutely incredible man. Um, he, I was talking to him about what we we're working on, and just a little bit, and sort of alluding to a few things. And um, he, he was asking me about some big challenges, and I happened to say, "Well, we have to make sure that a person can." can come out of the system. Uh, so if I, uh, you've just earned 10 mesh coins in the system, because we're going to have this whole concept of a mesh coin, a right mesh token, uh, how does one get convert that back into a fiat currency? And how can you convert that into rupees? How can you convert that into taka? And he said, well, why do you want to do that? And I said, well, because then they would want to have money. I said, well, what are they going to spend the money on? And well, they're going to convert it back into digital and, and buy digital goods with it. So why does it need to go back into fiat? If, if the number one thing people wanted to do in their additional change of life um, is primarily purchase things that are already digital, airtime, digital game, digital good, music, entertainment, why does that need to be converted back into fiat? And the answer is it doesn't. So you basically have this this wonderful little system that you get have a chance for people to to earn and create value from living their lives and that value gives them that universal basic income and that, that value can be converted back into the system for buying more system, more digital goods from people nearby and the whole cycle just continues on and on and on and that will have transformative effects absolutely and i think it will happen soon too i just think that the uh, you know with the with the right technologies and the speed at which things are changing. I wouldn't be surprised if we were seeing something like that in the next 18 months. Uh, hopefully less than that if we get our, have our, if we finish up what we're building. So. Well, I don't know. That's what I was kind of alluding to before I was asking you, you know, where, where are you? What stage are you at? I know you're at beta, but I think, you know, I don't know how far along you are in the development phase of ironing any issues out, you know. So, yeah, we, we, have, we still have work to do, but really in about... Uh, two months of development will be on a, a, what's classified as a test net. So it's a test environment that a user can be compensated for their data. And once you sort of have that fundamental thing done, and we're not doing our token sale until we have that thing done, um, then it's about refining that, getting that code audited, uh, making it better and stronger and resilient, uh, and then start building apps. And the, like a few of the apps we're, we're seeing here this week in Bangladesh, it's uh, they're building things. like So um, we, we came here this week with... 
say we're building apps, what kind of apps are you building? So we, we have, um, I think there's there's six apps, and then turn around and we look at a whiteboard here. There's there's six apps that the team is, has been hacking, and we sort of gave them very little direction to say, build apps. Look look at your life, what you what you would want to see if you had this tool. So um, they're building this, obviously, what would help their lives? Yeah. So we're, we're having an internet sharing app of someone wants to, to share their internet with somebody nearby. Uh, sort of an, an, an obvious one. The It's, it's a challenge because the, the first generation of our technology will not be general purpose internet. It will be application specific internet. So it might be app to server communication, but it won't be you can now browse all the internet for free and just sort of it's, it's open, but we we know we can get there. So this is sort of the first iteration of of that. Um, they're building a game and there's a, a popular game that's played in various parts of uh, really all across uh, Southeast Asia, primarily into China and Indonesia called Werewolf. I'm not sure if you know Werewolf. I've heard of it, yeah. Um, it, it's, it's basically this uh, quasi card game for seven to 10 people. And you basically, somebody's a werewolf and somebody's a doctor and somebody's villagers and you... You, you do this thing, so they're building this game. Um, I haven't seen it yet, so I get, I get to see that probably right after we get off this, this call here. Uh, they're building a news app. So one of the big challenges that not only is faced here in Bangladesh, but really faced around the world, is the whole concept of, um, air quote, uh, fake news. And really from a fake news standpoint, it's how can you sort of uh, almost crowdsource news and, and share that with people nearby and then trust that the news that comes out of the, the, a, a report is accurate. Uh, and then how does one who generates the news get compensated for it? They're building a, a news gathering app um, because they really think that, especially for small town politics, um, it, it can really be twisted by just a, a single news source. And really, if you have limited connectivity, the news sources are really limited because there's yes. he who has connectivity is the one who makes the news. So they're building one of those. Yeah, they're, they're building a business card app for use at conferences. So if you and I walk up together, and uh, we want to exchange information, but we're overloaded in a conference network. They, uh, how do we exchange information? Well, you say, well, let me just take your your paper card and I'll get back to you. But they think that should just be digital, so communication can happen across the mesh. Um, I saw a demo yesterday of a a what they're classifying as music mesh. Um, these are all sort of code names, of course, but a, a music mesh is is really about uh, can you have more than one phone connected together and stream songs from uh, one device to the other device to the other device and so on. So you basically use the speaker of every single device to almost create a a party. <laughs> so if, if if you have one person who's listening to music and now everybody in that mesh can also listen to the exact same song at the same time. Uh, that's 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 a big reach for where the technology is today. Yeah. But it, it's it's it was pretty cool. It was it it was definitely there's definitely something there that they can keep evolving. Uh, and of course we're building a, a messaging chatting application and but probably one of the biggest ones that's has sort of an immediate thing. We're building this app called Flare. And really what Flare is, is all about emergency communication. So what happens when there's an earthquake or a flood or a hurricane or any of these, these or school shootings or any of these horrific events that, that happens? Um, what happens when the networks go down in those environments? It's If, if you look at to, um, I don't know, and any of the terrorist attacks that have sort of plagued the world over, over years, well, the very first thing that happens is the networks go down because everybody's scrambling trying to get in touch with their loved ones. Uh, if you can actually facilitate communication, just that simple thing of I'm okay, uh, that would have enormous impact on, on the world of just being, I'm, it's, it's, it's Facebook's check-in safe, which is a great thing. If you have connectivity, if you don't have connectivity, check-in safe doesn't work too well. Um, 
So it's they're building this app called Flare that that does that as well. And honestly, just incredible. So listen, so how so you've got your group in Bangladesh, you've got your developers in Canada. You're obviously growing. I, I saw that you are doing an ICO. When's the ICO coming up as, as an initial coin offering? And what do you what what do you get with the token? What what kind of utility is the token? Is it just a utility token, or is it you know is it to be traded? I, yeah, I think it'd be worth going through that as well. Sure. So so we're looking at it um, whether we do a initial coin offering or a token generation event, we're launching this either way because, and we need, need to get a token out to the marketplace uh, because we need to have for those who are uh, looking at, I want to get, uh, receive compensation for my data. I want to know how many, how many rupees that's worth, how many taka that's worth, how many Brazilian real that's worth. And you need to almost in a way, a market price of that, of that data or the device resource to know when your, your local currency, what, what that's worth. Uh, so, so we're doing one. Um, the, the timing on that is probably late January, early February. We're still working through, uh, some specifics on that. Uh, we're trying to make sure <laughs> once again, we're trying to do things right you know, as, as we probably get a, a sense of what we're all about. Uh, we've been going really slowly through this process. We've watched this massive spike of interest going up and then we've seen some frothiness in the last, uh, last month, but that hasn't really changed our timeline. Awesome. It's not just me then, because when I was reading about you, I was thinking, I can't believe this hasn't been done before. It's phenomenal. Uh, it, it's it's really hard. Is, is the is the answer? Like we looked at it from a uh, and and the, and the first generation technology with um, with sort of a if you're using sort of almost off the shelf or just just Bluetooth or going from Wi-Fi to Bluetooth to Wi-Fi to Bluetooth and, and various things, um, it, that is hard. But to be able to do what our science group has done uh, of creating this uh, off-grid heterogeneous network capable of using all parts of the spectrum simultaneously in a protocol-based system that can connect app to app to app. There's probably a handful of people who could even think of that at that level. And we basically have grabbed the scientists. It, it's um, We went out and grabbed this, this, this super smart guy who finished his PhD. We, we tracked him down online after looking at a whole lot of papers and uh, we sort of uh, sought out Jason and said, okay, Jason, you're, you're highly cited in this field. You seem to be an expert. We want to know who you know of recent graduates who come through that you sort of nurtured along the way that you think might be interested in this, in this crazy ass idea we have. And uh, can you recommend somebody? He said, well, what about me? He said, well, what, what about you? So, well, what about me? He said, well, what about you? I said, no, no. Uh, what about me for this position? I was like, serious? You, you want to, <laughs> you want to join these small little guys in, uh, in Maple Ridge, a small town out suburbs of Vancouver on this uh, crazy adventure that has basically, at that point, I think we were about 15% chance of success. Um, he says, yeah, why not? I, I interviewed with Google and interviewed, yeah, yeah I, I, I tried Facebook, right. I tried Google and right. uh, from a, from a talking to standpoint, but I, you know, that's a big company thing. It doesn't have this world changing idea. Let's go for it. So uh, we basically went to him and said, is it possible to do what we want to do and take any smartphone on the planet, any being Android and IOT or iOS maybe one day, but any Android phone on the planet and any uh, Java enabled app, whether it's a, a Raspberry Pi or a laptop or a, anything else. And can we actually connect them without actually just through software? Is it, is it possible? And he said, well, thought about it. I said, yeah, it, it's possible. It's not easy. It's going to take a few years to get there, but yeah, we can build that. Um, so that's what we've done. So yeah. It, Phenomenal. I love the way that you've obviously evolved as a company. And I was really fascinated too. I mean, the way that you talk about teams, the way that you talk about you know, having met Chris, but but also the way that you wanted to build the company was to work out what your values were, 
then work out who the people were that you wanted to work with and then work out what you wanted to do. And I thought that was such a wonderful way of, of kind of coming up with a brilliant strategy for a company that's going to be successful. And, and I wondered if you could talk a little bit about your culture because it sounds like a great company to work for. And um, Yeah, you know, sure. Thank you. It's, it's something we take great well. pride in. It's um, Culture is, is absolutely everything to us as, as a company. And, and uh, Dana, who I mentioned before, who I'm traveling to, uh, brought with me on her first trip to Bangladesh. She's, she's actually in a different room interviewing a whole bunch of the, uh, the team members here on, on their lives and getting their stories. She said to me last night over dinner that um, I can't believe that the culture that you have here on the team is the same as the culture we have back in Canada. It's the same. It's the same core values, same philosophy, same type of people. How is that even physically possible to have a, a, a world-winning culture in Canada, yet you still have the exact same culture here? And, and I said to her, well, it's actually kind of simple when you think about it. It's the culture and the values we hold true are just – it's basically be a good person. And – and and try to do things right. It's we were somewhat perverse when we uh, called it left of the dot at the very start, and then rebranded ourselves to just being left because we wanted to do things right. And that's sort of who we were. So when we started to talk about culture itself, yeah. it, it was um, I guess sort of done from a a, a few perspectives that uh, over your professional career you see things that work, you see things that don't work, and you realize that uh, the most important resource you have as a company are the people themselves who are making those, those crazy ass ideas come true. And when you think about it from, from Chris and I's perspective, well, we work there too. Why would we want to work in a place that's miserable? Cause we're having to have fun. We're having to, um, to be part of this, this, this adventure. And if it's a, a horrible place to work, well, that's not fun for anybody. So uh, that's sort of how we sort of adapted things along. Uh, while we were talking here, uh, this is sort of goes back for, into story. Um, our development manager that we have um, here handed me a, a big, huge stack of cards uh, for what classifies legendary lefties. So we have this program in Canada and a program here in Bangladesh. Um, and it's basically, if you find one of your uh, your colleagues um, doing something that's basically living and breathing the core values, whether that's making your mark or little things matter or taking responsibility, uh, you basically make a quick little nomination to see uh, what it has. But let me just try to go through here. Um, some of the, them are in, in Bangladesh, so I can't read them. Um, but, uh, yeah, uh, I'm just trying to see. Um, uh, Nazrul, uh, he, he focused on the uh, core value of little things matter, is a legendary lefty because his little help makes her work too easy. Uh, in the Plevo app, he helps us to overcome the XML problem, which reduces our development time. Uh, so it's just... Uh, basically, you basically empower the team to identify and live and breathe the core mm -hmm. values, and the and the the culture kind of evolves from there. It's um, people people talk about culture being ping pong tables and and foosball yeah. tables, and we have those too, yeah. but it's not the things. It's the it's the people and how they interact every day with yeah. having that. Yeah, it's um, a startup is a yeah. human institution, human as Eric Reese used to say, and that's you can't be. Um, any more apt description of what any kind of business is about. It's a startup is a human institution, emphasizing the word human there. Yeah, absolutely. 
But I did, I mean, I must say, I was really keen on all of the things you were doing. Yep. You were saying, you know, you had some goals, which was what, win the Best Workplace Award in, yep. you know, um, British Columbia yep. by 2019. You did that in 2016. You know, you wanted to be world recognized. <laughs> well, we actually have. We've, um, we actually had, we have an entire wall um, on our office about it goals that we set for ourselves. We're very much a goal-driven organization, very metrics-driven. Uh, I can tell you conversion rates, referral rates, viral rates, profit loss, and so can basically everybody in the entire yeah. company. Uh, but so when we sat down and, and created our goals and these sort of this, uh, we do these um, uh, six, six, six plans. There's nothing satanic about that, but it's six weeks, six months, six year. Uh, six six weeks, six, six weeks, six months, six yeah, year plans. Really? So back in uh, 2015, so goals for 2015 are 16R, 17R, 18, 19, 20, all the way up. And we put these on our walls. But what we uh, what we do, and we've done it since day one, is that you, uh, you once you have your big goal, and this is a, a really big goal, such as win a community engagement award or win a, awards for best, work, best workplace, you reverse engineer the goal, reverse engineer the dream. And part of that reverse engineering is, okay, well, in order to do this, uh, how can we have a uh, – what would a world-class community engagement and culture initiative look like? And you, you brainstorm the ideas and, okay, well, in order to, uh, to win this award and get recognized at it, you have to – and you reverse engineer the dream. And we started reverse engineering the dream. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, and it's, oh, we, we did that with a, 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 a few things, and one of which was – be, be acknowledged for a community engagement program in 2020 and somebody had put up there because this is a, a team exercise not just chris and i team exercise and somebody says well you in order to get a win an award you have to apply so they say okay well it's the application process well the application process here and somebody else said well you, in order to to apply and win you should get some practice at it so we said well we should apply this year and lo and behold we were recognized for our community engagement programs and and it, it's but you start start thinking about it and then the people look at what we what we do it's, 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 it's hacking the system in, in, in a way, but um, part of our, our mandate, and you start looking at what makes a, a world-class community engagement program and, and, and getting recognized for the community, and we have this whole concept of unlimited community hours. So, yes, people have time off to go on holidays and, and various things, but we have this – we pay people to volunteer. We, we pay our, our team to volunteer as many hours as they want anywhere in the world and volunteer their time. So whether it's uh, volunteering, teaching – Kids doing a peer mentorship program. Um, I saw somebody log some hours in our, our system that uh, they spent uh, nine hours a day uh, yeah. doing this whole uh, project called Help Portrait, where he's taking photos. He's a, a great photographer um, back on our team in Canada, and he's taking po uh, photos of people who uh, need a nice Christmas gift but can't afford a professional photographer. Um, so he basically volunteers his time for, for nine hours, and he's out helping out. Uh, we pay our, t our employees to do that. So it's in all that kind of thing is just sort of who we are and, and just sort of evolve. So, but it is still, yeah, it's, it makes it a much more fun place to be for, for ourselves and for a team. And then they attract more good people and the whole cycle improves. Yeah. But just so human. And I loved how, I loved how you were kind of approached your goal setting and how you kind of, framed it as the metaphor of a kite and talked about success you know the success tra yep. trail is a series of small deliberate actions with intent you know all those little yeah from, from those little things matter which is one of our our, like our values as i as i said uh there's a hawaiian proverb we used to have up on the wall of, a, of our old office that says the the kite flies because of its tail 
So if you just make a big goal, but don't actually take care of the small little things, like those little um, little bows in the end of a, a kite's tail, it will fall back to the ground. And, and we a, a kite has to be tended, and and that's sort of why we adapted the kite as a metaphor for the whole uh, the whole company. Is that if you if you play with it and, you, and basically you're pulling the wind and it'll you'll sort of be majestic and flying through the air and you can make it do amazing things, but if you ignore it, it will fall back down again. So it's that's kind of who that's kind of what what we're about. It's um, the, 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 those values are are things that uh, we live and breathe every every day. It's uh, from a culture committee standpoint, we we now have committees and in, in the teams that sort of plan out different activities to do of how we can actually do and how we can actually live and breathe those core values every day. But myself and Chris aren't aren't allowed to be part of that committee. No, we do. Django, he's he's our our our, our DOG, yeah, director of greetings. Um, so he he has he I think he even has business cards. I tell you, I just... oh, this is so adorable. Honestly, it was so hilarious talking to Chris about his dog and the. Oh, I'm sorry about the cat story. That was funny. Yeah. I don't know whether we. Yeah, no, we're not. We're not going to talk about that. It, like, it's what? a. What about the cat? No, we do have a director of greetings. Okay, he's. Um, he, he's. Uh, we only have a one dog office policy now because the days we tried to bring two or three in, those were not good days. The days we brought in one, one dog and two cats, those are really bad days. So we now we have a one dog policy, and um, <laughs> so. No. Yeah. Yeah. So we'll never be able to bring Cha-Cha, but just as well you're in Canada, sure. Bangladesh, and I'm in Melbourne, hey? So listen, I thought I'd ask you just a few quick questions just for fun because I... What's in my fridge that's constantly replenished so other than milk? Well, I have an 11-year-old and a 13-year-old, so two boys. Um, so milk is definitely going down quickly. Um, uh, cheese. There's, there's a whole bunch of like shredded cheese. You, you, you start making nachos, which is great, and you yeah. help yourself to cheese, but... Uh, with my 13-year-old, he turn around and he basically opens up the shredded bag of cheese and he's basically throwing handfuls down his throat. Um, and and it's uh, I, I love cheese too, but not not quite in that. It's like he he lifts his head out of the fridge and he has those little uh, tangles coming down on one thing like like whiskers now of, of cheese. So yeah. Okay, okay. And, okay. When I was so a kid, well, you, um, for you, I, just as a quick little aside, one of the brands we started running early, early, early on in the company was Christmas.com. So if you want to ask something for Christmas, I probably shouldn't say this on the air, but if you happen to write to Santa at Christmas.com, either Chris or I would write back. Mm-hmm. Well, actually, most likely it would be Chris. I, I refuse to write back, but he, he will basically guarantee a pony if somebody asks, which is not a good thing. Um, cause these are complete strangers who write into Santa at Christmas.com. And then we, then anyways. Um, so when I was a kid, yeah. Uh, when I was a kid, um, what did I ask Santa? Well, it definitely was all, all Star Wars at the time. What was the biggest? No, I, I was, I was, they, they weren't around when I was, I'm a little bit older than that. Um, definitely electronics, a Qbert game. That's one of the things I asked. I'm not sure if you remember the game Qbert. There's a little handheld arcade game or. Um, probably around the size of a laptop, and a little joystick thing, like a mini okay. mini arcade game, and I, I played Cubert for hours after I got that one. Nice. 
Very sweet, very sweet. And what advice would you give? Well, actually, no, I flipped it. I interviewed someone recently, he's a futurist actually, Professor Sahel in Ayatollah, who is actually a Pakistani that has spent quite a bit of time, I think, going to Bangladesh as well. But what advice? He said, I said, what advice would you give your 20-year-old self? And he said, no, you've got to flip it. He said, you've actually got to think about what, you've Hmm. got to think of it as, what advice could someone give me now? So he said, what advice would my 80-year-old self give me? Uh, I got a a flippant answer, maybe a more poignant answer as well. I probably go back and sort of travel in time and tell myself some ridiculous statement, like, like, don't forget the fish or something like that. Just make me ponder and say, what did I mean? What was that? What was that all about? Just some random statement. And, And just to to sort of throw me off the, 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 the chase. But uh, I saw happen to see a uh, might have been a Twitter comment or, or something like that the other day, where somebody asking the question is, why is it that people are worried about developing time travel because they, they feel if they were to fly back um, and travel back in time, they have such a dramatic impact by a small little gesture on the future. So if you go back and you say, buy Bitcoin or something like that, that would dramatically change, alter the course of history. Yet here we are, thinking that the things we do every single day, they don't matter. Yet in reality, what you're doing is you're impacting your future and you're impacting everybody around you every single day. Yeah. So um, if my, yeah, all those little things you do every single day, they matter. They matter a great deal. And you have a chance to do, use business as a force for good. You have a chance to, to make your mark. You have a chance to make your mark every day. Uh, And you got to take that because if you don't, it's, what's the point? Absolutely. Very few people don't think. Yeah. Thank you. And remember to be kind to everyone all the time, I think, which I hear very yep. resonates. I can hear it resonates in the culture of the company that you're work, you know, that you're doing the work in. And so going back to Right Mesh as we're at the end of uh, the time we've got together, what um, information, if people wanted to get some more information about it, where's the best place to go for both? Less so left. I think the best thing people can do is they can go to rightmesh.io, that's R-I-G-H-T, mesh.io, and that's right as in we do things right, not right as in, hey, this is kind of a cool piece of writing. Um, But when they go there to to look at our white paper, and uh, I, uh, myself and our chief networking scientist, Jason, uh, we spent mm. great time writing two papers, one being a much more of a product-based paper, as, as everybody does, and we also have a technical paper. But the product paper really explains the story that we've been and the journey that we've been on, but also explain, explains the, the pain in the market and the problems we're trying to solve. And uh, I, I think if you start to, or your listeners were to go back and, and read the white paper, uh, they'll sort of hear the story, then they'll want to get involved. And, and the best thing we can ask right now is that, People who do read the story or do listen to this this, this this podcast, they get involved. They 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 have a chance to to join our story as well. The the Right Mesh SDK, we're, it's it's a free SDK. It's going out to the market for free, so there's not a, a charge for it. There's there's other ways that people can make money along the way, and we have a chance to change things. And and best way to change things is if we do it together. So um, that's what we're, what we're about. Just fantastic. Thank you so much for your time today. I hope people do come on board and get in contact with you and read the white paper. I will certainly be talking about it with all the people that I know because I think what you're doing is absolutely amazing. Thanks so much. Well, thank you very much. It's been a lot of fun.
Oh, my God.